Welcome to the 12 Days of Edition Wars, featuring 2nd Edition AD&D players and DMs option books. In this marathon series, we are taking a close look at a set of special books that are often considered AD&D Edition 2.5. On the 8th day of the Edition Wars, my DM gave to me proficiencies with spells and magic part due. So. So. So, right. Uh, we've talked we, we did a whole episode on uh, skills in uh, in the game and proficiencies and non-weapon proficiencies and we talked at length about how much trouble I have saying that set of orders together um, it, it was a thing um, and so uh, this this chapter is a deep dive on that and it's giving us a lot more uh, proficiencies for uh, wizards and uh, priests as we go along. Um, it's not a terribly long chapter, but um, this is very, very much filling the same role in this book as a, uh, a chapter on feats will do in a, uh, a 3.x book, um, such as uh, Complete Arcane. Mm-hmm. Um, because as we've attested so many times, these all come across as uh, feet-like content, right. um, and most of them provide a specific mechanical benefit. They're they're very often positive statements about something you can do, but you very often have to roll to do the thing. Right, right, uh, and. Uh, this you this presents both systems for uh, non non weapon proficiencies, uh, both the base score with character point cost and the slot cost with check modifier. And I think it's nice of them to uh, maintain that level of backward compatibility mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, because it isn't something that uh, some of the other books in this. Uh, uh, players option yeah. series have cared about right um so um i mean this is uh, this is 17 uh new skills um uh, and some of them are going to you know make it into the 3.0 skill list um i'm uh, looking at you uh alchemy and concentration um well, these are all just the wizard ones, right? Because there's other, right. there's other. So when you say seventeen, that's uh, yes, yes, I'm sorry, ones, right? But yes, some of them end up being. And then there are sixteen priest skills, um, uh, priest proficiencies, um, some of which are also going to make it into uh, later skill lists in in other ways. So, um, like. I don't know that a, a deep dive into each individual uh, proficiency is going to do anyone a ton of favors, but uh, as far as I can point to, this is the first appearance of concentration as a thing for maintaining spells. And um, hmm. if you are, you know, if you're looking for it, yeah, it's, it's going to, um, persist all the way through uh, uh, 3.0 and mm-hmm. 3.5 um, 
not be exactly a thing at all fourth. in fourth, and then uh, come back in a greatly simplified but form with a vengeance in fifth. <laughs> yes but, but with, but with a vengeance absolutely <laughs> it, it is it, it definitely has teeth um but the, the format is simpler sure. and it isn't a, uh, a right. skill point tax the way it most assuredly is here i mean once you have started to sink points into this thing um i i really feel like you want to continue because there's there's a lot of sunk cost fallacy in, I, I don't want to be kind of good at mm-hmm. not losing spells. I want to be great right. at not losing spells if I'm going to sink anything into it. Um, but maybe that's just me. Um, and uh, likewise, we have you know alchemy, which is uh, always going to be uh, a, a right. popular. You yep. know, option for a skill, but is going to have all the same problems of uh, you know, crafting mm-hmm. that run throughout D anD. d It's always sort of um, do I have real components or do I have uh, a, a cash conversion right. machine? And this is a cash conversion machine uh, with a proficiency right. check. Then there is. Then there's sage knowledge, and, which is the precursor to the knowledge skills, which yep. has multiple sub fields. Right? You're not you don't just get sage, right? You know, not knowledge. <laughs> you get uh, sage knowledge alchemy, or sage knowledge art, or sage knowledge heraldry, or you know, uh, for sure. Though uh, to a considerable degree, those were already uh, attested oh, sure. under other yes. names in the the. Uh, second sure. edition player's sure. handbook. Agreed. Right. I'm just pointing out they they go through the painstaking. Uh, you know, let's give a paragraph or two to each of these. Oh yeah. Individual. You know. Um, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's a huge, huge section. It's it it is practically mm-hmm. the majority of the chapter. It's just a ton. Um, and I did have players that really wanted to engage with this. I, I'm actually going to say that out of this book, this might have been the chapter that saw the most mm-hmm. player engagement from mm-hmm. uh, my group. Um, I have I have memories of <laughs> I wish I were making this up. Uh, reading the uh, the wizard um, optional abilities and limitations section out loud to one of my players okay. over the phone. <laughs> um. I mean, it's not really a mystery why I didn't have a ton of friends, y'all. Like the people that liked me must have really liked me, but everyone else <laughs> thought it was weird. <laughs> and in their defense, they weren't wrong. Uh, but I, I recall having a player who decided that he was going to go after some sage knowledge. And in fact, mm. didn't play it as a wizard. Okay, he played it as a fighter. It was what he wanted to do. He had a concept. Yeah. God bless him. He chased it. I, uh, I think that campaign uh, <laughs> didn't last real long. Uh, it was yeah. One of the few shorter campaigns that that we played, um, but he had a concept and he wanted to chase it. And boy, did he! Um, and, and that's mm-hmm. that's very cool of him um, because he knew right. that what he was doing wasn't optimal, Stuck but he just it, yeah. really wanted to like 
really wanted to chase that and you know see where it went. Um, and there's also a whole thing on signature spells, which is uh, very much to a wizard what weapon specialization is to a Except fighter. Except you get one spell per spell level instead of one weapon. But yeah. Sure. Sure. But you don't run out of weapon slots in a day, right? Uh, and so, I mean, to me, signature spells really are more interesting mm-hmm. than weapon specialization because uh, signature spells don't really make you lose right. interest in treasure. Um, they're going to deform your gameplay a bit, but it's not going to be, uh, hey, so we found this spell in a dragon sword. Oh, you don't want it because it's not a signature spell? Well, okay. And, and that's that's my deal with not liking specialization as a thing. Um, I realize that I may be the only person who cares about that, but I think it's uh, I think it's corrosive to the game. Um, so, right, then we get priest proficiencies, uh, which are similar. Uh, are, are similar in overall deal. There's definitely some overlap with um, bookbinding and papermaking and scribe. Uh, and sage knowledge, but um, then you have skills like diplomacy and and persuasion, mm-hmm. two separate and, skills and oratory. Not two different names for the same thing. And oratory, and oratory. The, all three different. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and then <laughs> which ties nicely into bureaucracy, but you know, <laughs> right, right. Well, and administration and bureaucracy and ceremony. Right. Yes, um, like. And law; those right. are all separate and inve- things. Investigation, sure. thank yes. you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Of course, yeah. It's um, it's 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 a stretch. Well, no, no. I, these these as being just open to the priest. This is what this is informed by the idea of the priest as as clerical diplomat and you know right. uh, sort of medieval ideas of oh well the bishop is a politician as well as you know, a church figure, and therefore that person uh, must be persuasive in the pulpit, but also must have other skills that they can use on the politicians and yada, yada, yada. Um, Whereas, Uh, for sure, whereas if you're you're going to be an ecclesiastical bureaucracy, right, right. right. And if you're not playing a game, though, where the priest is exposed to those sorts of opportunities, then these proficiencies are not as useful. Uh, right. I, I do want to at least give a nod to the fact that you can um, buy outside of your uh, uh, class mm-hmm. proficiencies. Sure. Uh, and it's overall far less punitive than uh, uh, buying outside of class skills in right. later editions. Right. Uh, so, so I appreciate that. Um, sure. Like, it, well, well, and especially you have a bunch of classes that uh, buy uh, skills from many different uh, uh, class lists easily. So Paladin, for example, is going to buy all of these just fine. Mm-hmm. Um, but yes, I, I think that you're right that it is uh, you know, playing a very specific vision of what a priest is mm-hmm. and one that doesn't hold up even with just the priest chapter of this book. Right. Um, right. Because 
none of these aside from ceremony and omen reading really make any sense for the shaman right um or really the druid mm-hmm. um and maybe only investigation and observation oratory and undead lore mean much for the crusader mm-hmm. observation uh, is so general that it could be anything <laughs> sure yeah uh, observation and investigation right cool thank yeah. you yeah right um but you know that that's another thing that makes it all more feet like mm-hmm. right right um the differences are sliced incredibly thin in exactly the same way that third ed feats are mm-hmm. and, and fourth ed feats mm-hmm. while we're on the topic. Sure. Um, ultimately though, um, it's fine. It, like, there's nothing wrong with any of what's going on here. It's just sort of, um, it, it feels a bit padded in, in, word count and usage. Mm-hmm. Um, and it all has you know, the fundamental problem that it shares with feats of um, once you define this thing, uh, then you have to have the thing to do, to do the task described. Mm-hmm. Uh, like engaging with administration when you don't have the administration skill. Well, now how do you do it? Right. Right. And, until this book came along, I didn't need a skill to do that. Mm-hmm. Well, oh. Well, on, on the other hand, there's this also this weird sort of narrowing of ability here. For example, with the observation skill, you're right. Like, okay, well, can I be observant without having that proficiency? Well, here's what it says about that. Right. It says that um, characters that have observation uh, have – cultivated an exceptional power of observation and the dm sure. can ask for a proficiency check anytime there's something wrong or unusual here's the example the example is the character may note the fact that the tools of a potter's shop are caked with a different kind of clay than present in the workshop okay that's decent then it says or they might notice the telltale marks of traffic that indicate the presence of a secret door okay fine then it says, but the dm shouldn't let this become a substitute for alertness and good thinking on the part of the player if he's picking up more than one or two clues a game session with this proficiency, it's probably too many. So what what about the player who just says, oh, I want to look around the room to see if there's any footprints. You mentioned that it's caked with, with, uh, with dust. I want to look for footprints. Does that character right. have to have the observation? Or if the character does have observation, does this count as one of the one or two clues? You know what I'm saying? Uh, it right, sounds sure. extremely narrowed. Uh, in one example, well, and and of course it shouldn't become a substitute for alertness. Alertness is a different right, skill, of course. Yes, uh, you know, it's a different non-weapon right, proficiency, right? right. Uh, not in this book, but yeah, you know, in, in a book. Yeah, exactly. So it's it's very. Um, while you're right, it, fe- it feels uh, like it it limits what characters without the proficiency can do. Yeah. But it's also yeah, once exactly. you get the proficiency, exactly. it's now limiting what that sort of more broad sounding category is even good for in some cases. Well, and man, oratory versus persuasion, the opening sentence persuasion just 
it hurts me bad. <laughs> Unlike oratory, which relies on emotion and rhetoric, the art of persuasion is built around intelligent arguments and personal yeah. charm. <laughs> what the hell did you just uh, say? You just said that uh, emotion and rhetoric has nothing to do with personal charm, and that's absolutely wrong. That's what you, that's <laughs> right. what you did. That sentence contradicts itself well, right and, in the end. <laughs> and oratory has nothing to do with intelligent right. arguments? Yeah, yeah, right. Yeah, cool. Of course, yes, yes. That's, yeah. that's a good look. Yeah. That, that's the look you yeah. want. God, like it just it just gets me. Oratory says this is the power to move other people with words and emotion by captivating an audience. The priest can convince them of the rightness of his words through force of will and dramatic speaking. In other words, it doesn't have to be true, which is what persuasion is saying. Persuasion is you're persuading them, and everything you're saying is true. Yet there, notice there's no deception proficiency in this set of right. So persuasion right. is about telling the truth. And and the oratory is just about making them feel like they want to believe you. Uh, right. Um, uh, it's <laughs> which it's yeah. Lot. I mean, it's you know, the, we could talk about that for an hour. Just just that. In very thing. deed. So moving on right. to chapter five instead. Yes. <laughs> I agree. Let's move on. <laughs> so um, so chapter five is the equipment chapter, and um, it's interesting what they even regard as equipment. Because it isn't portable. Um, but there, there. Well, because remember, this is this is spells and magic. So the equipment that they're mostly focusing on is stuff that you would find during research or doing the research or in a laboratory, right? Right. And and so this is really kind of veering toward the the mid late game. Um, we're ready to start thinking about this in terms of domain mm-hmm. play. And filling right. out spellbooks kind of deal because uh, it has the the production cost and time for mm-hmm. uh, different sizes of buildings that you're going to put your laboratory in, and uh, different uh, sizes of libraries that you're going mm-hmm. to to gather and and sort of store in that laboratory, presumably. Um, right. And so it has all kinds of rules around that. Um, and don't get me wrong. That's a neat thing to have. I, I'm, mm-hmm. I'm in favor of it. I, I think that um, this is a place where I, – I, I can't say that the designers are, are consciously borrowing from uh, Ars Magica, but if they aren't, they mm-hmm. should be. <laughs> uh, yeah and uh, it also then goes on to talk about acquiring spell components so it goes from the very largest thing that you could be talking about the actual building the actual library or the actual temple or the actual laboratory to talking about individual components yep. the smallest thing you could talk about well and the uh, r- really fairly brutal maintenance cost on playing alchemist or an artificer mm-hmm Right. Yeah. Huh. huh. I mean, it also talks about, um, you know, how do you make sure that your spell components don't rot, basically? <laughs> right. How do you how do you store them appropriately? I mean, this is the you know this this is a fairly detailed chapter. Uh, uh, right. Like it, it's very much about what do I do with all this money and how do I get the money right. to make me a better wizard? Well, mm-hmm. here's your upkeep cost. 
My what? Right. Right. <laughs> yeah. Um, and, you know, that's something that uh, fifth edition has received a lot of critique for, you know, not enough things that a player would clearly want that they can spend money on. Mm-hmm. Um, like we have huge amounts of money. What do we spend it on? Well, I mean, at this point, uh, I think that the right answer is, let's up to you to decide, come up with something that your character wants. Mm-hmm. Decide to want something that isn't best achieved by stabbing it and spend right. money on it. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, this is operating in the dynamic of uh, second edition wizards where that's the primary form of arcane caster and there aren't all of these uh, charisma-based spells known casters who don't need to research spells kicking around. Um, This is the last edition before you really get a lot of, well, I just inherently know the spell. I don't need to read a book about it. Right. Kind of casters. Which, okay, to be fair, there were also a ton of groups that weren't bothering to do the research part of gaining spells. Right? Uh, sure, though I don't necessarily expect TSR to acknowledge uh, people not using what they write in the books. Sure, I, I'm yeah. not, and I, that's fine. I'm just, I'm just pointing out that the play at the table depended on the group. For sure. And For sure. I know just from from my own experience, so this is anecdotal, that you know, at some level, unless it becomes part of the quest of the of the campaign, you're not going to send your wizard off to spend three months at a library researching something just to learn that seventh level spell. Yeah, uh, right. And and I agree that that's uh, how people uh, did things, um, but it's interesting that the that doing that was a, a an assumption. Right, mm-hmm. that right. campaigns would proceed on that kind of long time delay, right. um, and th- there would be that kind of uh, downtime, especially as you crested, you know, about ninth level. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So anyway, moving on. So then, then you get this little section about um, arcanists and apothecaries, and basically herbalists, and and then there's like a five page equipment spell component list that breaks it down into these different categories like minerals and refined goods and you know common items it it, it does uh, give everything a a scarcity rating and a basic cost and uh what the methods of acquisition have to be you know, in other words, uh, earlier it talked about, you know, whether it's a field search or whether it's a, you know, you're scavenging or what, whatever. Uh, um, <laughs> and so this this sort of five-page table, I mean, it's quite fascinating how, you know, how they, you know, it even goes into different animal parts. And, you know, um, it, uh, this is the kind of minutia that I love to look at, but rarely use in a games unless, as I said, it's a specific uh, quest goal or something. Um, right. But I, I like this kind of stuff. Uh, right. And like this, so, so there's a, a, a deep part of my soul that speaks to, mm-hmm. uh, and it's the part mm-hmm. of my soul that has professionally designed crafting systems for MMOs and right. is just in love with crafting mm-hmm. because this feels less like spell reagents because it's sort of, frustrating and mm-hmm. a lot more like 
you have to craft a thing to get a new spell. Right. And right. that's really fun and interesting mm-hmm. to mm-hmm. me. Um, but yeah, it's, it's a giant table with, uh, you know, rarity and means of acquisition and so on. It's that's it's pretty fun if you have the kind of group that can give the uh, the spellcaster that kind of time. Now, let's be real. No one, no one wants to be managing the actual components of each individual spell in this way. And uh, Third Ed is the first edition that just comes out and says that, that we know you're not going to do this. You have a spell component pouch. It has the stuff you need. Let's move on, right? And and that continues right through, um, you know, unmolested into fifth edition. Sure. Yeah. Um, and but, you get also um, you get the ability to use a focus and all that kind of stuff. So yeah, yeah. But if you did use this table as a uh, as a component list for crafting spells. To, as your approach to spell research, that would be real cool. It'd be real cool. Um, it would it would have, I think, a very much uh, an Elder Scrolls alchemy dynamic to it, mm-hmm. and people like that because they keep doing it. If people right. hated it, they wouldn't keep doing it, right? Uh, but right, uh, did we cover the um, the priestly altars? Oh, I kind of skipped over them just as the. Items that can be, right. you know, used. <laughs> a, a, a consecrated priestly altar is the priestly answer to what wizards are doing, right? Um, and that's that's fine and good. Um, yeah, I mean, it's whatever. It, 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 um, you know, uh, it, it basically, you know, a, a consecrated altar makes that basically a a blessed magical area. And, you know, if you have believers in the same faith as that priest, you can start doing things like having a pilgrimage, you know, having some NPCs form a pilgrimage to go to that altar, that, that sort of consecrated holy area, that, that sort of thing. It makes that possible in a very specific way. Um, but, you know, it'll, you know, whatever it is, it is what it is. Um, but that leads us to the end of that chapter after that equipment table. With the all the components and all that, then you have. It's also I just one more thing about the spell component. The very first section of the spell component table is models and miniatures. You can get <laughs> by special order a miniature clay ziggurat for ten gold pieces. <laughs> Which you know, fair enough. Uh, I, I I that that stuff as you said that speaks to a very deep soul thing. I just love the idea of that. That, you know, if right. you're playing in a high magic world, like, you know, you, you sort of have this idea of well, what what are, what are all these things when you go into the magic shop? What's all? It's not just a bunch of potions that the players want to buy off the shelf. It's these little jars of all of these, you know, components and all of these little items and they have to have dates and you know how they've been stored. And you like, that's the sort of like, if you're in a high fantasy world that has magic freely available or or maybe not freely available unless you know where the quote magic shop is. And then when you get there, that's the place where all of this stuff is that sort of magical, mysterious, you know, bunch of clay jars. Well, what's in them? Well, let's take a look at what's in them. You know, that sort of thing really speaks to me in terms of setting a tone. And this, 
this spell component table. I've used it countless times, along with some that were from old Dragon Magazine issues about how you get components mm-hmm. and what creatures have what components. Like, I just use that sort of thing, not as a campaign focus, but just as a, you know, here's this one part where you go into this area and here are all these things and how would how did this person acquire these and, you know, that sort of thing. It all It's very, you know, evocative of a certain of a certain type of world for me. So, in any way. Yeah. Oh, so the other thing that uh, shows up here is uh, rules for buying, selling, and trading magic items, mm. which it, it, this is unusual in second edition. Um, it was unclear to me how difficult that was supposed to be in first edition, where every magic item had to have an associated gold piece value, so you know how many experience points you get for it. Um, but this is one of the few places that it is uh, given a, a formal presentation, if a punitive one mm-hmm. in second edition. Um, I mean, it talks about the cost of magic items, and I mean, the game wants you to mostly be uh, adventuring for magic items right. and not buying them. But um, let's face it, players who discover a giant hoard of wealth uh, – are going to want to turn it into some kind of power or risk mitigation. Uh, and so, you know, spending, uh, as a basic rule of thumb, magic items should be worth anywhere from five to 20 times the listed experience point value. You know, the, the other thing, though, is that also it this this section also assumes a certain um, a, a certain world setting uh, situation. And here it is. It says, for various reasons... Magical items tend to be concentrated in the hands of player characters and their principal enemies. This means that the PCs never really experience the true scarcity of an enchanted item, and they lose the sense of wonder that most people in the world would feel at even seeing or being in the presence of a magical sword, wand, or a nifty thing like a carpet of flying. Um, Yep. Because of what I just expressed a few minutes ago about, well, if you know where the magic shop is, you go to the magic shop in your large capital city, and here's all the things in the jars and all the everything that you could do with that or what you might find in a large arcane library or whatever. The PCs would be exposed to that, but regular commoners would not. Um, and I, it's true, if that's the setting that you're in then that would be true. But I would I would hazard a guess to say that, for example, in 5th edition, in the Forgotten Realms, uh, the majority of, of people in Waterdeep, commoners in Waterdeep, have been exposed to magic in a consistent enough manner that it's no longer mystical to them in certain ways. For sure. For sure. Uh, you, you really... You, you really can't read uh, the second ed presentation of the city of splendors right. and think anything right. else. And, and, and also uh, I would say the same for Eberron, although, you know, that did not exist necessarily in second edition. Uh, it might've existed in Keith Baker's home campaign, but in terms of for general consumption, Eberron did not exist until third edition. So that's, you know, I mean, heck it has, you know, trains that run by lightning. So, uh, you know, airships that uh, that travel by you know elemental power uh, in Spelljammer, for example. You know, so this particular setup suggests a specific type of setting that doesn't necessarily match the actual settings that people were playing in. Yeah, yeah, I think that's extremely fair. Well, and like this whole this whole section, like making this work for Dark Sun. 
<laughs> right. Mm, yeah. Mm, not uh, so much. Mm, yeah. I mean, we're going to get to the Dark Sun section. That's later in the book. Sure. It's just this chapter doesn't doesn't carry that sense of um, grimdark scarcity mm-hmm. right. that that typifies Athos. I think. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So you want to move on to the uh, to the next chapter? So yeah, I think I think let's try to cover uh, cover chapter six, magic, which I mean it, it is it is going to be a beast. So we're going to have to uh, keep on moving and not. You know, get bogged down. Just be ourselves. Yeah. yeah. Um, so, so this is this is the the, the deep dive kind of stuff, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I mean, we start right off with a spell point system, um, and it is written as if we're mostly talking about wizards, which of course we're not, but we're talking about all kinds of casters, and we we'll, we get to a, a little more on other casters later, but. Um, I mean, by any standard, this book has a hard bias in favor of wizards. Sure. Uh, in terms of what the content is and how it's all addressed, and all those podcasting classes, including priests, are are present and they're represented, but they're an afterthought. And so there's there's just all kinds of stuff here for uh, the spell point cost of individual spells, and you can be doing a lot of, you know managing of of numbers um and there's a whole thing on how many spell points you get and uh the the spell cost by level for fixed magic as opposed to free magic um and you have to do a little you know flipping around to figure out what in god's name it is talking about um uh, but it has, it, you know, th- this is a this is a pretty in depth system. You know, it has uh, spell point cost. It has uh, ideas for if you want to, um, you know, have greater effects during casting. Uh, if you want to reduce the spell point cost, therefore you could have theoretically more spells. Uh, but then you might have to reduce the power of individual spells or prolong their casting time, uh, and it gets really intricate in 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 this. Where where and then how do you recover spell points and things like that? Um, it's it it's it's bookkeeping. You know, this is this is a yep. QuickBooks uh, QuickBooks necessary. You know, get out your Excel spreadsheet. Right. <laughs> I definitely agree with that. I mean, it, it is doing you no favors for speed right. of play at the table. By not by any standard at all, is it is it helping you there? Um, but but yeah, I mean the, the the short version of recovering spell points is so take a long rest and and uh, I mean there's a spell point system in fifth edition, so it, it is definitely something that there is a fan base of interest in um this isn't something my table does but you know there, there's definitely fan interest um this system happens to be one of the more grueling variations available because there are so many different things to do to uh increase or reduce cost um i really get the sense that it kind of thinks you're going to play more like mage um, especially when I look at the uh, the reducing spell cost thing, uh, well, a lot of these are only sort of okay ideas if you if the players have a lot more uh, control over the pace of the narrative. 
and you know it, it isn't mostly a, a an action game as people talk about D&D being but more kind of well we're a cabal we research things at our own pace you know it, it feels to me more like mage or ars magica some of the the detail here for for options well and then and then it introduces the idea of channeling right so rather than right. casting in a Vancian manner. Well, really from there we start getting into a lot of highly customized approaches to magic. Uh, because as we all know, the schools of magic and, and all the different ways of specializing in the wizard chapter were nowhere near enough. Buckle in. And so I just want to call out something that they did in this book. And that is that they... So they've got all of these different – so I mentioned channelers, right? And then – so channelers, the area the, – the part of the book that talks about channelers, okay, is formatted such that it has like a teal, grayish teal color bar surrounding that item. And then, and then the next yeah. section is about warlocks and witches, and that's got a blue bar surrounding it. And then the next section is about defilers and preservers, as you mentioned. We're going to talk about Athos, right? And that's got yellow, brownish yellow around it. Oh, maybe orange, I guess, in the printed. I'm looking at a PDF right now. And then the alienists and summoners have a purple bar around them. Um, and, you know, so it, in other words, it um, it took its formatting really seriously <laughs> um, because it wanted to make sure that you understood exactly where these different areas began and ended. Because if you didn't, it would be much too yeah. easy to get 100% confused by – because some of these are so different. And they're not short sections. Right. They are long. You know, Some of them are pages long. Right. I mean, they are they are whole alterations of right everything about your exactly. approach to arcane casting. I mean, they are they are big big statements about what right. magic is like in a campaign. In like the best example, really, is they are as big of statements about what magic is in a campaign as defilers and preservers are about Athos. I mean, that is one of the central differences of all of Dark Sun. So you can't skip it. Yeah, because if you skip it, you're not you're no longer in Athos by definition. Right, um, and I, I, I called this out, um, you know, in a, in a previous episode. But man, the section of warlocks and witches is just just punishing because it goes through multiple stages of. Um, of corruption uh, from enticement to invitation to touch of darkness to embrace to creature of darkness. And I mean, I think that could be in about five spells, but uh, once you get to uh, stage five creature of darkness, you're just an NPC. Right. We're done here. Yeah. You, you can't, you can't do anything else, right? Like that's, and it literally says that this, this warlock is no longer a viable PC. They have to pass into the DM's hands right. permanently as an NPC in the world, which means that is a campaign-breaking descent into power, right? Uh, right, and you know it's not that that isn't interesting. No, of course, yeah, yeah. No, I'm not disparaging. Man, a, a five-step track is is brutal, and the things you do to um, resist the descent 
um, they are adventure stopping. Um, the psychic turmoil of this conflict completely occupies the character's attention for 1d3 days, mm-hmm. during which he cannot cast spells and fights with a minus 3 penalty to his attack rolls. I'm sorry, what? I, oh, I cast a magic missile in the fight. I hope you guys have 1d3 days. And and it's not even it's not even oh I resisted the uh the, the change in stage so the adventure is disrupted or I didn't resist it and so the adventure is disrupted no no matter what like just just testing the the role like that's it let's actually tell our audience that's listening what exactly we're talking about so warlocks and witches it says I'm gonna just read it to you they have a serious limitation. Every time they spend spell points to cast a spell, they risk attracting the attention of a chaotic or evil power. The character has a percentage chance equal to the number of spell points that they expended, minus their level, of being forced to take a step into the Pact of Service with the Malevolent Power. For example, a 7th level wizard casting a 4th level spell, 15 spell points, has an 8% chance, so 15 spell points minus 7, their their level, that's an 8% chance of drawing too much of their patron's power and then being required to either add to the debt of service that they owe or start on the path of servitude to another Dark Master. There's always at least a 1% chance of this happening regardless of their level. So, sure. so what happens is when they, when they go into you know stage 1 is enticement. Their patron gives them a gift. They gain a minor, a natural feature or trait. There's a whole bunch of uh, more things in here, okay? Um, but basically, the more steps you go in here, the more power you get, but there's only five steps. So when you hit the fifth step, you're no longer a PC. And as you gain more power, you're your percentage chance of accidentally, you know, that seems like those numbers don't seem like they're that big. Oh, 8% chance, 8% chance. Guess what? If you play a lot (laughs) and you cast spells a lot, as you will, if you're a warlock, then there's a high, there's a high chance you're going to accidentally invoke this multiple times. Right. Well, Well, for example, a sixth level spell, uh, for fixed magic, you're, you're looking at 30 spell points, um, and you're casting that at 12th level at the soonest. So, uh, okay, 18% chance. Mm-hmm. That's that's getting it up there, right. and it just it scales up sharply from there. Right. And you know, uh, there's the narrative is is good and interesting, but the mechanics are just brutal, and it isn't like you have a lot of other problem solving tools to work with um, because it's not like your class gives you a bunch of features that aren't spellcasting mm-hmm. mm-hmm. uh, in a campaign where you, you had a, a whole other you know, class worth of features and options for solving problems. So you were only drawing on your spellcasting when the ships were down, then we're getting somewhere and that's pretty cool. Right. Right. Also note that as you take the steps along this path, you not only, you know, it, it's not just, oh, well, now you're you're sort of subsumed into this patron's, you know, whatever. You actually might start to 
grow things like horns or fangs or talons or, you know, your eyes might start glowing red. And, you know, you might get some extra abilities that go along with that, like an acute sense of hearing or an acute sense of smell. But now you have horns. You can't just walk into town. You have to make sure you have a cloak on with a hood. And you can't speak to anyone because now your voice has a raspy quality and you can see fangs anytime you open your mouth. You know, that that sort of thing, if it gets role-played, right, as, as an effect of you casting, you know, that, that, that could be the, the focus of an entire campaign. That could be a really fantastic campaign that someone accidentally triggered uh, going into stage one and made a pact – and didn't mean to, and now they have to break the pact. And so you play out the campaign as the story of how the party helped this particular warlock, you know, uh, break their pact or, or try to stop their descent. Uh, that could be fantastic, but it's a very specific type of campaign. And it's, sure. it's the way that you could make this punishing, but not feel as punishing because if you're trying to play a sort of what quote, a regular quote campaign, I don't know how you would do it with this. Yep. I mean, it, it is an interesting campaign, but um, it it really changes everything. So just to just to talk about channelers, the idea is that you have to, you know, draw the magical energy through yourself, and you get fatigued. There's a there's a whole fatigue table and uh, faster spell point recovery, and that kind of thing. Uh, but the the fatigue levels. Uh, much like exhaustion levels in 5e are um, harsh. Yeah. Um, these are ultimately less harsh, but they're still harsh. But you can become more severely fatigued where you get a negative four penalty to all attacks, a plus three penalty to your armor class, because remember we had a different armor class direction here, yep. uh, and, and their movement rates reduced. Or you can be mortally fatigued where you're incapable of basically doing anything. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Other than uh, you know, you have to attempt a saving throw versus paralyzation, right? Uh, and you're just so strained you can't do anything. You might uh, just pass out, right? And, and that's that, this is very much in keeping with the the supporting fiction of fantasy in general, but it isn't D and D styles anymore, right? Right, and, and that's that's okay. Like yep. I'm glad to see them try to support other kinds of fiction. Mm-hmm. This is just um, – this system is especially brutal. And it, right. it – I mean, if you want to look at it as trying to drag that quadratic wizard back down to Earth, then mm-hmm. I think you've got a light to stand on. Sure, uh, sure. I think, that's, I think that's pretty well supported here. Yeah. Um, anyway, uh, then there's rules for defilers and preservers, which are what you'd expect if you know what Dark Sun is. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the – you have to gather spell points from the uh, the land around you, and you can either gather quickly and uh, destroy the land, or gather slowly and preserve the land. And this hangs it on initiative modifiers, which uh, is rough. But a preserver can accumulate spell energy at a rate of four spell points plus one spell point per level each round. So, casting a Sixth or seventh level spell is gonna take a minute. Mm-hmm. You're, you're gonna be here. For, well, I say a minute, multiple minutes because a round is a minute. But let's right. not get bugged down. But you're 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 also talking about uh, alignment requirements now. 
Oh yeah. Uh, because defi- defilers cannot be good aligned. Right. Um, you're talking about actual uh, hit point infliction if you start destroying the earth. Um, you know, you, it, it's 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 what you'd expect if you are familiar with Athos at all. Um, but uh, you know that it puts it out here in case you're not actually playing a Dark Sun campaign, and you could you know adjust this to your own campaign, which is fine. Yep. Um, it's also very punishing, I guess, is my point. So, you know, the channeler thing, the fatigue is punishing, the the warlock uh, five steps until, you know, being fully overcome uh, is punishing, um, and the defiling versus preserving is punishing. Um, well, and... And, <laughs> and the next one is also going to be punishing. Well, right, and the next one is very, very explicitly just trying to give you Call of Cthulhu in D&D. Like, mm-hmm. sure. they're not beating around the bush at all. There are places where the text calls out that they're trying to do what happens with spellcasters in you know, Lovecraft's work. Um, right. And, this is your Far Realms infestation, right. uh, but it only infests your mind, so you go insane. Right. And there's a random insanity chart, which is going to be just as problematic as mm-hmm. almost all other uh, tabletop game presentations of mental illness. No, no right. surprise here. It's problematic. Yep. Um, I mean, this is, and it's horrible to have to say this, but this is less problematic than some of the mental illness stuff from Forgotten Realms. Yeah, because homosexuality is not a listed mental illness. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Uh, anyway, like th- this, much like. Um, sort of sanity loss in Call of Cthulhu is, uh, you know, an increasing thing. You have your, your chance of insanity and your modifier to random insanity chart roll, just the the whole deal. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, you're, you're taking a risk every time you, you cast a spell. No surprise. Right. Um, and almost the entire mechanics are just the listing of all the mental illnesses. Mm-hmm. There's, right. The the actual mechanics are uh, less than one full page, I think. That they're about a, they're about one full page, and then everything else is mental illnesses and phobias. Yeah, Great. this this is more about informing the the player uh, how they should be role playing their character if they are afflicted with this mental illness. Yeah, definitely. And so that leads us into priests, um, which they have their own, you know, individual categories of systems of magic. But ultimately, uh, priests' spell points work about the same way. Um, there's you know, fixed theurgies and free theurgies, which is basically, well, if you didn't prepare the spell, but you still really need it, you can just pay a bunch extra, and it's fine. <laughs> which is cool honestly i i'm i'm into that mm-hmm, mm-hmm. um you know something that that like that that is to me the right kind of trade off to be offering is what i want to say i think the priest the priest magic systems presented here are much more workable in terms of if i'm if i'm a player and i'm looking for oh i want to do something i'm not sure that that I would choose one of the spell systems from the wizard section 
unless unless there was a very specific campaign we were playing, right? Right. But for example, the, the ritual. I don't think there's a real sense that the player would choose one of those, mm-hmm. like because they wanted to do that. It's right. more the the player has agreed with the GM that that's going to be how arcane magic works, right? In like, whatever setting. I, I don't. Yeah. I don't see uh, alienism and summoning uh, living alongside channeling, right? And you just choose one of those. I don't right. think that's what we're talking about. I, I meant it more as you know. I don't see a player reading one of these and saying saying to their DM, "Hey, for the next campaign, I want to play this kind of wizard that that uses spells this way." You know, um, right? Without without a lot of leading conversation beforehand, right? Right. Uh, and um, and 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 a discussion about how long that campaign might actually be, right? Is it is it three yeah. sessions? Because that's different than oh, we're going to play for a year and a half, and you're playing a defiler, you know? Right. Well, and um, so so the priest section again offers channeling, which is brutal if you need to be a party healer, if you're expecting to spend most of your spell slots in a day, or or spell points, you know comparable to spell slots mm-hmm. then ouch right you might be able to cast many separate times in a day but you're gonna need a, a bit of a, a tea time between mm-hmm. um so the next option is ritual prayer which is very very involved with uh, places of interest sanctified places mm-hmm. offerings purity and faithfulness previously expended spells Preparing for the right amount of time, having the correct, right. you know, offerings. Those two things are extremely important to providing the ritual effect that you want. Um, you know, this is suited to a game where you're going to have a lot of downtime, and you get to say, "Well, here's what my priest is doing while everybody's out at the tavern carousing. I'm doing this thing instead." Right. Um, which is a very different kind of game than I think a lot of people were playing. Yep. Um, well, and after ritual magic, there's conditional magic, which is a whole system of uh, of triggers for permission to cast a spell, in a sense. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. But and also has the oddest the oddest art piece. <laughs> Y- yes, that <laughs> that is an understatement. It is the weirdest yes. piece of art on page 96 if you're following along at home. <laughs> that is a woman who has made decisions with her life. Yes, yes. Um, oh. Anyway, moving along. <laughs> um, but the, the effects of conditions table is mm-hmm. – it is doing a thing. Like – there's a whole thing about you might get to cast at a higher caster level or whatever, depending on how many positive conditions you've stacked up as opposed to negative right. conditions. Or and, you might just fail completely because of right. the negative conditions. Yeah. Uh, and so that's going to be adjusting your spell point cost on the fly. Um yeah, and talk about bookkeeping again, right? So here's here's some ideas of what they're listing as positive conditions. Uh, the priest is engaged in combat against a traditional enemy of the god or the faith. For example, if you're a priest of Thor, you might have giants as your 
you know, whatever. Uh, or second condition, the priest is located in a place sacred or special to the deity. Okay. Uh, third, the priest is engaged in a situation favorable to the deity, fighting for a god of war or trading for merchant power, etc. Um, you know, the spell uh, will directly benefit another worshiper of the same deity. That's a positive. Then negative conditions. Oh, the spell aids or supports an enemy, or the priest is located in a place inimical or opposed to their power, or the priest is involved in a situation distasteful to or opposed by their patron, or uh, it will directly or indirectly injure or discomfort a fellow worshiper of the temple. Uh, you know, those are the sorts of positive and negative effects that we're talking about. Yep. Uh, if you're uh, in an adventuring party and you're going into a crypt that is representatively under a temple from an evil god, I mean, you suddenly you've stacked up all of these negative conditions, right? Uh, just in the course of regular, what we would call normal, average adventuring. Though so you do at least have the positive so, condition of engaged in combat against uh, working for you. True. Yeah. But yeah, you're you yeah. are probably going to be thinking real hard about. Uh, ways you can mitigate some of this stuff. Um, and mm-hmm. really, if you have party members who belong to other faiths, you've already failed. Like right. Y- right. you are, you are making a bad mistake and you need them to convert just so you can use your class abilities. That is a problem. Right. <laughs> yes, it is. <laughs> um, right. Anyway, um, the, the rest of this chapter goes quite quickly. Druidical magic doesn't, uh, get much of its own section except to say preserving and defiling could be a thing um but but it's it's kind of a uh, uh an appendage right. um and then other spellcasters is is just spell point tables uh there's there's no deep dive there into alternate casting methods um yeah so bards rangers paladins don't get much notice at all really it's it just really is a, a separate spell point progression table that's all right and, and i think you could probably because bards are just arcane casters mm-hmm. uh under a different right. name in in second like their spell list is the wizard spell mm-hmm. list uh i think that if you wanted you'd be um oh yeah okay so uh, option rules for spell casters is is a little section here saying you can use channeling or whatever mm-hmm. for your other kinds of spellcasters if you want. That's fine. Um, and, and birds probably should because right. uh, there's nothing really stylistically that should get them out of whatever uh, hassle you're dragging your wizards through. <laughs> but that's going to bring us to the end of chapter six and I believe the end of another episode. I believe so, yes. And the next chapter, Spell Research and Magic Item Creation, is something we can talk a lot about, uh, along with Chapter 8, which is Spells in Combat. So that's going to be our next episode. Brandis, where can people find you on the internet? I write my own blog, Harbinger of Doom, uh, at Uh You can find me on Twitter at Stoddard. I write for Tribality.com, and I have a Patreon that is Brenda Stoddard. Excellent. And I am DM Samuel on Twitter, and you can also find me at uh, RPG Musings and pretty much anywhere else the Tome Show is. Uh, and uh, you can contact us at dndbrief at gmail.com if you have some comments or suggestions. We haven't previously given a an email address. So that is something new that we're starting here in this last couple of episodes. 
Um, I'll start posting it in the show notes as well in case you need to access that. Uh, otherwise, we hope you are enjoying this uh, 12 days of Christmas or 12 days of Edition Wars and have a great uh, season. Thanks, everybody. Look, mate, three generations ago, my ancestors forged the Great Blade Skull Splitter. With it, they won the Goblin Wars, the Hobgoblin Wars, the Orc Wars, the Demon Wars, the Elf Wars, and the Gelatinous Cube Wars. And that one doesn't even make sense because they don't have skulls. Now, all these years later, the legend of the Great Skull Splitter grows. Offering dice to help you create your own legends, Skull Splitter Dice makes the highest quality dice beautiful dice of both plastic and metal. Want to roll bones that look like bones? Or just something with enough heft to split the skulls of your enemies? Skull Splitter Dice has that and more. Check them out now at SkullsplitterDice.com slash Tomeshow and use the coupon code Tomeshow with all little letters and get 15% off. Now get out there, split some skulls, and build some legends. 